Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Medicaid Leadership Exchange, our podcast series exploring priority topics with Medicaid leaders. My name again is Hillary Kennedy, and I'm Program Director for Medicaid Leadership at the National Association of Medicaid Directors. NAMD is excited to work on this podcast series with the Center for Healthcare Strategies, and it's made possible by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. As we continue to release new episodes of the podcast, we're featuring conversations between Medicaid directors and sometimes members of their executive teams. We're looking forward to our upcoming discussions, which we're organizing as a mini series, looking at a variety of leadership dynamics at play for directors and their teams as they work to address equity, both within their agencies and for their members. I'll introduce the moderator for today's session, Gretchen Hammer. Gretchen will be a familiar voice to many of you who have listened to our podcasts. She works with NAMD as a senior strategic advisor, and she also most recently was the Medicaid director in Colorado. With that, I'll turn it over to Gretchen to say a few words and welcome today's conversation participants. Gretchen? Terrific. Thank you, Hillary. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, we are pleased today to have two states that are diverse in their nature, but both focus a lot of their efforts on supporting the communities in their state that are considered rural or frontier. So we have Michelle Probert from Maine, uh, which is a, a rural state up in the Northeast. And then Stephanie Stevens from the state of Texas, uh, which is a large state with lots of um, open space and tumbleweed uh, down in, in the South of the country. And of course, I'm always shared with uh, share this podcast with my partner in crime, Mark Larson, at the Center for Healthcare Strategies, who will provide some uh, expert commentary at the end, uh, pulling out the themes from our conversation. As Hillary mentioned, the Medicaid programs across the country have committed to supporting and advancing equity. And we take that lens of equity with a very broad perspective and include populations who, by the place where they live, may have differential access to services and supports. And in particular, those are rural communities um, that may have limited infrastructure. By that, we mean broadband, transportation, some of the places, some of the things that are critical in the urban setting to supporting access to services for Medicaid enrollees. There also can be limited provider networks and other limitations that are just part of rural life. So today we wanted to spend our podcast learning from two of our national experts in this space on the Medicaid program and its approaches to meeting the needs of rural residents and talk about um, their experiences. So I'm going to turn it over um, to Michelle to start if that's okay with you, Michelle, and just talk about what you have seen in your state uh, from a geography perspective, infrastructure perspective, your provider networks, that what have been some of the challenges that rural residents of Maine have faced in accessing services? Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me this afternoon. Uh, and just as a reminder to folks, my name is Michelle Probert. I'm the director for Maine Care, which is what we call Maine's Medicaid program. So Maine, uh, depending on the source you look at, um, is sometimes considered one of the most or the rural states in the country. Uh, in terms of the percentage of population living in a rural area, we are near the top. And also, if you look um, uh, at how urban we are, we're one of the least urban states by some measures as well. We also uh, are one of the, um, if not the oldest state in the country as well. So those both present uh, challenges to us. Um, I will say that uh, another barrier that we have is that 
while all states to a certain degree um, struggle with transportation in part because of access to services and distance to services, we have uh, even more limited transportation op options in terms of a public transportation infrastructure in the state. So that um, has always been a challenge uh, for main care and, um, and uh, especially during the pandemic. Uh, can lead to even greater feelings of isolation um, as, as well as more challenges uh, when we're uh, wanting to make sure that the population is getting tested and vaccinated, et cetera. Um, in terms of, uh, I think you asked about partnerships as well, our community organizations, um, we uh, have had a great partnership with the Area Agencies on Aging in the state. Uh, so they are all across the state. Um, and because we are an old state, uh, it's been a great resource and uh, trusted organizations. And they were really fantastic in reaching out to our Department of Health and Human Services as a whole. And as we were setting up infrastructure in terms of you know, can we have a central call number for vaccines or can we have a way to centralize scheduling? Uh, and we didn't have those things set up yet. The area agencies on aging were like, hey, just have people call us. There is a central number and we can pull together the resources in our individual communities um, and find people what they need uh, regardless of what the issue is. So that um, uh, was very appreciated and, and a great resource. Terrific. Thanks, Michelle. I, I think one of the things that you brought out in those comments is the important nature of understanding where your rural residents are already connected, right? It can feel like an obligation of the Medicaid program to create new connections or to ask your managed care plans to do that. But um, your area agencies on aging uh, partnership reminds us that there are places where rural residents uh, are already connected and finding those partnerships can be as important to guaranteeing access as taking independent action as a Medicaid agency. So I'll circle back to you um, to learn a little bit more from you, but Stephanie wanted to bring you into the conversation and think about for the, the large um, geographic area that, that you oversee in the state of Texas, what are the common themes of um, inequities or the common challenges that you feel uh, or hear about that rural residents in the state of Texas face? Sure, thanks Gretchen. And, and as you mentioned, Texas is, is different from Maine and that, that we have both large urban areas and large rural areas. And, and your comments on tumbleweeds, which we do in fact have, made me think um, that, that rural Texas is really part of our identity. So there's a strong focus within the agency on rural areas of the state and we have strong advocacy through legislators and various organizations. Texas is also a, a managed care state. So our Medicaid services are delivered almost entirely through managed care. And in our oversight, one of the themes that we see is that while people in rural areas may have access to primary care or, or preventative care, when you start to get into specialty care, you can see um, some differences in access. So you may have rural communities that don't have a OB-GYN or an ophthalmologist. And so that's an area that we're focused on is how do we get access to specific types of care in rural areas? I'm sure we'll talk more about um, teleservices, but that's 
been a key way um, that we've approached access prior to COVID and then during the public health emergency. It, you, you also mentioned partnerships and that is also a focus in Texas. And I would say specifically on you know, those providers that do exist in rural areas. So we are focused on shoring them up. We have a rural hospital services strategic plan that is ensuring Medicaid reimbursements are adequate and appropriate, and that we're connecting them with um, existing supplemental hospital payments and existing revenue sources, and that we're also identifying challenges that they experience um, in working with different payers. So we've implemented a rural hospital advisory committee to help facilitate that. Another provider type that we're focused on is the rural health clinic. So we, we have a proposal before um, CMS to do a directed payment program to really promote primary and preventative services and also management of chronic conditions through those rural health clinics. And then I would say the last thing that we're really focused on is, is assessing other innovations. So CMS has put out some options through the community health access and rural transformation model that we're assessing. And we also um, are about to implement a grant program to help connect non-urban facilities um, with, uh, to, to help them have teleconnectivity uh, for pediatric care services. Terrific, Stephanie. I think, you know, your comments really picked up on the, on the importance of both the people as well as the providers, right? That, that you, as a Medicaid program, we have to be attentive to both. Um, and so we do know, and, and you mentioned that, you know, the state of Texas may have been ahead of the game on telehealth, but many other states moved rapidly to implement telehealth, mostly from a, you know, social distancing requirement perspective, but it does seem that there's a unique opportunity to enhance rural care delivery with this new infrastructure, investments in broadband for education and healthcare, as well as um, just general telehealth policies that are now statewide that can, can particularly serve rural communities. So maybe if either one of you could share how you've seen telehealth and some of the flexibilities afforded by the public health emergency, how you've seen that particularly be responsive to the needs of your rural residents. I can speak to that. Uh, so in Maine, we were lucky that we had uh, what is widely considered a very uh, progressive and comprehensive telehealth policy to begin with. Um, uh, so we started off the pandemic with that in place, which was very nice. Um, However, nobody was really using it, which is often the story that you that you hear these days. Um, and so at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of the time we were spending was on uh, a lot of guidance. Um, and, and some of it was interpreting guidance ourselves that nobody had asked us these questions before. Providers hadn't asked these questions because they really weren't utilizing the service very much. So we really um, initially did a very deep dive on just whether it was home and community-based services or whether it was how do we do um, pediatric wellness visits with telehealth. It was really diving in and getting guidance out there as much as we could and partnering um, with organizations like New England Telehealth Resource Center to get the information out to providers and also let them know other resources that were available to, to get them up to speed. Um, and we really saw our efforts um, pay off quickly. Um, 
we actually saw a 9,000% increase in our telehealth utilization um, uh, at, at its peak, uh, and it has gone down since then, but with the surge in cases, it's gone up a bit. Um, uh, so we know we know people are using it. Uh, we were pleased that with the data that CMS has shared, um, it's still only for, I think, the first six months of the pandemic, but um, our efforts specifically around children have paid off and that uh, we, I think, are one of the top two states uh, in terms of children accessing telehealth services. Um, uh, and uh, we have made sure we made some changes that were that we're keeping permanently. So previously we hadn't offered pharmacy. Uh, we now are, uh, especially with a focus on substance use disorder, which has been so important as we've seen um, a substance use disorder and substance use in general increase during the pandemic, as well as unfortunately seeing uh, overdoses in, in, increase as well. Um, I think a lot of our primary care um, uh, appreciated and behavioral health services as well appreciated that we added a lot of the codes that were focusing on evaluation and management and triage and screening, um, especially when uh, things were shut down that just enabled uh, ongoing support for the practices, frankly, and the ability to have important interactions with their patients that otherwise may not have uh, been considered a payable event. So I think that that was very important for folks um, also. Um, I, I mean, everybody says, you know, this is one of the silver linings of the pandemic. And uh, we already had a telehealth strategy because we know that it is going to be critical to access in rural areas that may never have as many psychiatrists as we wish that they would have. Um, and we had already been talking about through the um, maternal opioid misuse model or mom model about, hey, how could, could we use telehealth for uh, medication assisted treatment? Is that something that would work? And so now we're, we're doing all of it and we've been able to run the numbers to show that in some, for some services, uh, telehealth was extremely effective at preventing a drop in utilization. Uh, so we look at overall volume and then overall in-person volume and uh, you can see that telehealth kept the service constant, even though in-person drastically dropped off. Um, we have made some progress in terms of the urban-rural divide with telehealth. We've uh, run the utilization numbers looking at urban, rural, and then super-rural using CMS definitions. And we're actually not seeing a difference between urban and rural, which was really great to see. There is still a difference between um, the rural and the super rural. And so we're, we're looking forward to making um, more progress on broadband and there's other state legislative initiatives as well as federal opportunities as we know coming up. So that, that should be helpful. Terrific, thanks, Michelle. Stephanie, do you have anything to add on telehealth and its impact in Texas? Yeah, I think, I mean, many of the themes that Michelle uh, talked about are pretty similar in Texas. We went into the pandemic with uh, a strong push uh, towards teleservices, again, because of the nature of the state, but we also still expanded pretty dramatically. Um, I think there's services that we might not have considered for teleservices before the pandemic that we did. And also, and particularly important for rural areas, you know, we're allowing certain services to be provided audio only. So I think that helps 
specifically with some of the technology barriers that we know exist in rural areas of the state. Um, and similar to Maine, we're, we're in a, currently in a legislative session and starting with you know, the leadership in the governor and the legislative leadership, uh, they are pushing legislation through to expand broadband access um, because of what we've seen through the pandemic for healthcare services as well as education. Terrific, thanks. So one of the things that we've heard in a couple of these other podcasts is the role of the Medicaid director and Medicaid leaders to really advocate and explain to their state partners who Medicaid serves, right? So, uh, you know, there are people who are homebound that Medicaid provides services to. What's the plan for vaccinating them? You know, there are people who may not have transportation. What's the plan? So I have heard in both of you that even though your state has an orientation to rural because of the makeup of your legislature, the geography of your, of your communities, that there's still been a role for you to, to advocate for the needs of, of rural Medicaid beneficiaries. So maybe looking um, at some of those current e efforts that are vaccine related or continuing um, to get people back to school or back to work uh, as we come out of this pandemic, are there any specific areas where you're seeing, you're continuing to sort of need to raise your hand in those state conversations about the unique needs of Medicaid beneficiaries and, and Medicaid beneficiaries that live in rural communities? Yes, I think that one uh, value we've been able to uh, provide as the state Medicaid agency is, is from the data perspective. Um, and we have it easier than a lot of other uh, health plans in that we uh, are under the same agency as our Centers for Disease Control and they have the immunization data and we have worked together with them to pair the immunization data up with our main care data. And uh, that offers a lot of potential because you mentioned, for example, individuals who are homebound. Um, well, really the only way to kind of try to count who those members are, where are they and are they getting immunized is to look at our, main, our, our Medicaid service information to be able to actually say, okay, these are the individuals and we can see whether or not um, they, are, they are receiving their vaccines. And the same thing for individuals in long-term care and are they getting tested? So um, it's easier for us to, uh, to find, if you will, those populations that are most vulnerable and to see if we're reaching them. Um, also, when speaking of health equity um, more broadly, uh, main care's population obviously is lower income than the state as a whole, and we know that that creates a lot of barriers, um, and we tend to be um, more diverse than the state as a whole. So, uh, you know, Maine, uh, like many states did, uh, struggled with much higher prevalence of COVID-19, especially last summer and fall. Um, uh, particularly uh, with our populations uh, of color and our, bi our, our BIPOC populations. And um, uh, so uh, it was important also, it's important also for us to see um, whether or not the partnerships that we've made and the efforts uh, we've taken to partner with those populations and community-based organizations have uh, been paying off both from a prevalence perspective, but also as we uh, work with community-based organizations to um, to have pop-up vaccine clinics uh, in, in places uh, where people already go and with people that they already trust. Great. Stephanie, any thoughts on that? Part of the uh, response to the pandemic has required us to be very flexible. And I think 
and things have conditions have evolved over time and that's the same with the vaccine administration so you know it's evolved on where our public health partners are focused on getting the vaccine out you know initially it was very heavy on nursing facilities healthcare providers and over time that has evolved and i think we're in a, a different phase now um, where we're starting to think more about people who may have access to the vaccine, but may be making choices not to pursue the vaccine. Um, and so our, we're working you know, with our uh, public health partners to try and help address where there's vaccine hesitancy. Um, they've done a lot of work on what is the appropriate messaging for um, people who may have you know, more hesitancy about getting the vaccine than they do about getting COVID. So, you know, we are working with our public health partners to try and get out their messaging um, as it evolves over time and focuses on different populations. So I think in addition to folks who may be vaccine hesitant, we're also, again, we've evolved. So, you know, we've been adding different places where people who are covered by Medicaid can access the vaccine including um, rural health clinics, federally qualified health centers, and we're very focused right now on homebound individuals, as you mentioned. And I imagine we'll continue to shift again with back to school and making sure that our kids, um, as the majority of Medicaid clients, are getting access as well. Terrific. Well, we're coming to the end of our time, but you know, across our conversation, you've really talked about the importance of a, a commitment to rural populations. It's sort of part of your agency, but in other states, it could, you know, you have to make that sort of highest level, director level commitment to looking at both urban and, and suburban and rural populations. You've also talked about how you've had a lens of rural equity on your policies and on the partnerships that you've engaged. But are there any final lessons learned, for lack of a better word, or words of wisdom uh, that you would offer to Medicaid directors who are trying to improve the supports that they provide for rural residents in their state um, that they should be thinking about or something you would highlight just as um, something you found to be really important and successful. Sure. So uh, going back to the beginning of our conversation, Gretchen, when you mentioned about the importance of having trusted messengers and channels, uh, that's that's been really important for us um, uh, as we've I tried to understand whether it's a reason for hesitancy or uh, obstacles uh, to people getting uh, to where they need to go or making sure that uh, they uh, ha have housing or a way to care for their child um, because otherwise they can't quarantine. Uh, all of those um, challenges, we, we would have failed if we hadn't um, over time found the right community partners uh, throughout the state uh, in rural areas, as well as in um, our, our few more uh, urban areas. Uh, and that um, it's been such a roller coaster ride this year. Uh, and we have all experienced just the importance of flexing your, met flexing your methods and evolving over time. And, um, you know, you try one thing and if it doesn't work, you try something else and you talk to somebody else and you just kind of keep needing to, to cycle through 
um, because we're all trying to get it right at the, the same time. And there's it's it's uh, interesting when you don't really have a big bank of uh, best practices to rely on. And so um, it's worth putting yourself out there um, even more so than usual, even if there, there are going to be some failures here and there. Uh, and then I'd also just reiterate again that um, uh, I think uh, it's really been great for our data analytics team this year to uh, see such real-time impact of the work that they do, uh, whether it's, you know, what providers are suffering the most because their utilization has really dropped off and being able to target uh, payment supports effectively, um, or... Uh, looking at our non-emergency transportation, uh, we were able to do some great analysis to show, hey, you know, because, because trips have gone down, but we've still been paying under a brokerage model a fixed amount, we know that there's a delta there. Let's use that to, get, to give rides outside of Medicaid to anybody in the state who needs them. And we, and we had a broker who um, fantastically was able to partner with us. And so just going back to that data um, uh, can really help with that flexibility and responsiveness um, and, and making sure that efforts are working. Perfect, thank you. Stephanie, any final thoughts? So I always say it, it takes a village to run a Medicaid program. And I think, you know, as Michelle said, we just need to consider when we're working with different groups, different rural areas, those partnerships may look different, but, you know, everything that we do um, generally is done in partnership. And so I, I think that that's the key moving forward. Terrific. Well, Mark, I'll turn it over to you to provide your words of wisdom back to all of us of what you've heard in particular from our um, guests and their leadership, amazing leadership work during this time. Gretchen, thank you. Uh, I always appreciate the role of listening to super smart people like Michelle and Stephanie, and then being able to get credit for repeating back their wisdom. Michelle, Stephanie, three things really stood out for me. Uh, and this has been a reoccurring theme of many of our podcasts is the importance of knowing the members that you serve. And in this case, we're talking about members who uh, are from rural communities uh, and the importance not just of knowing them and their experience, but also the resources within their communities. I think when we talk about Medicaid, we often talk about very broad brush strokes around who who is served by Medicaid. And really, it's, it's a very, very diverse um, collection of people and populations. And I, I'm always appreciative of the important role of staying connected to the knowledge of, well, not just the knowledge about who you serve, but I think you both mentioned in different ways, having real connection so that you can know who the trusted messengers are, that you can know what the experiences are. Now that stood out to me once again, and uh, I was reflecting as you were talking about uh, probably very few people would think about Medicaid as a nimble uh, organization, uh, but in many ways, it's really interesting to hear your stories about how uh, really when push came to shove in the last year, Medicaid programs have responded really fast, and the leadership challenge there for me is highlighted in the context of, Michelle, you talked about having a telehealth strategy beforehand, uh, but then needing to sort of put it on steroids really fast. And I think in your work, that ability to maintain both a directive vision for where you want to get, but also be able to take advantage of, you know, the things that you didn't predict, uh, like a pandemic that come along. Uh, 
And then the third piece that stood out for me is the the ongoing importance of data in the kind of the new world of not just knowing what success is and being able to report on whether we achieved it or not, but really being able to in real time understand uh, what are people's needs, how are we meeting them, uh, who do we have to serve them. Uh, that, that feels like a really important piece that you emphasized, both in terms of telling the story of Medicaid, but also knowing, uh, are you getting closer or further from the success that folks uh, depend on you for? So I really appreciate your, your wisdom today. Thank you. Hillary, I'll turn it back over to you to wrap us up. Thanks, Gretchen. And thank you to Michelle and Stephanie and Mark, as always, for your thoughtful remarks during today's conversation. I hope everyone listening found it as valuable as we did. And as a reminder, you can subscribe to these podcasts, which we're calling Medicaid Leadership Exchange on the Apple Podcast Store, or you can keep an eye out for future editions that will be posted to the NAMD and CHCS websites. Thanks, everyone. And we'll talk to you next time.